Jason Mott's award-winning novel, Hell of a Book, is a bold and imaginative story that takes readers through a multidimensional universe where magical realism, humor, and breaking of the fourth wall examine love and grief. Mott's protagonist embarks upon a book tour, but soon the unnamed author finds himself followed by a young black boy who may or may not be imaginary. On this episode of the Vulgar Geniuses podcast, we talk with National Book Award winner Jason Mott about writing without constraints, his love of Street Fighter, and how an inside joke among friends about Nicolas Cage made its way into his novel. So don't go away. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzysbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses podcast. We're your hosts. My name is Denny. And I am Veronica. And today... Today? <laughs> what is happening today? I don't know. I, I don't know how this happens. I don't know why they said yes, but they did and they're here. And they're the fastest to say yes. The fastest to ever. I've never gotten an email that fast before in my life. And it... <laughs> was such a blessed day when we got a yes and um today on our show we are joined with uh national book award winner for fiction author jason mott uh jason mott has published four novels his first novel the return was a new york Times bestseller and was turned into a tv series that ran for two seasons He has a BFA in fiction and an MFA in poetry, both from the University of North Carolina at Wilmington. His poetry and fiction have appeared in various literary journals, and his most recent novel, Hell of a Book, was named the winner of the National Book Award for Fiction in 2021. Welcome to the show, Jason. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing terrific. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for being here. We are going to do something different. Uh, we've never done this with our regular fiction authors. We normally do um, this question thing that didn't get ready to do with you with our YA, but we just felt like because of the tone of the book and because of just who you are, I think that this would be a great opportunity to um, do our hot seat question. So I'm going to pass it off on to Denny. You know, <laughs> for our listeners, would know more about you maybe you know maybe maybe have some more interest in the man that is okay so okay i'm nervous but okay (laughs) um so we we start with question numbers number one this is like really very important to me um between the two who would win if they would fight kazuya mishima or shin ryu (laughs) Okay, so I would I would want Shinryu to win. Um, Yay! That's who I would want to win. But anybody with Mishima and their last name is gonna be hard to be. So I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> See, um, you have to pick one because I know these are your favorites: Raising Arizona, Lord of War, or Mandy. Ooh, that's tough. Um, I'm gonna go with Raising Arizona just because that started me on the whole Nick Cage train. So I'm gonna go with that one. Classic. What is the best part of being a purple belt in BJJ? <laughs> Beating up on blue belts. <laughs> <laughs> What's the highest belt? What's the highest color? Uh, black belt is the highest belt. So purple belt is kind of dead in the middle. There's white belt, blue belt, purple, brown, and black. So I'm kind of dead in the middle. Oh. Black with some stripes. Okay. Yeah, I'm exactly. <laughs> Um, in 2024, it would be the Summer Olympics. They're including video games. Are you hyped? And Veronica has a question if you bought your tickets yet. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I tried, I wanted to go to, because they had video games in the last one. I wanted to go, but no. <laughs> so yes, I would definitely be there for the video games. <laughs> um, and, you know, besides besides the gaming, 
and the Nick Cage marathons. What does Jason Mott do for fun? Um, I drive cars kind of fast. Um, I'm a big fan of racing. So I go to like, I got a, a M3, a BMW M3 that I take to track days and I try not to crash it and have fun. Um, so yeah, I like to drive fast within legal means. <laughs> <laughs> That's always important. Well, there you go. Those are the um, questions for the rest of the interview. You're you're good to go. Awesome. Those are fun. Those are some of the funnest questions I've actually had. Like, no one ever asked me about video games, which is all I want to talk about. So that's great. <laughs> you know, fighting and video games. Because my husband is a big gamer. So nice. All all, all the things. Is that what you you do to like you know chill out after work or whatever? Or are you like, oh, I'm yeah. I'm stuck on a book. Let me pick yeah, up. Yeah, wholeheartedly. Like uh, I spend so much time thinking about writing and working on writing that like I have to I have to do things that will dramatically take me away from that headspace to relax. Um, so like in jujitsu, you cannot think about other things because otherwise you'll get choked. So you have to focus. Same thing with cars and the video games, like you have to be focused. So that helps me detach from the writing world, which is good. All right. Well, we're going to bring you back into the writing world with our question, our, our, our next question. Um, your book, uh, Hello Book, is um, about a Black author who sets out on a cross-country publicity tour to promote his best-selling novel. And it's a storyline that uh, drives Hell of a Book, and it's the scaffolding of something much larger and urgent. Um, can you talk to us about this wonderful achievement of what it was to become a national book award winner for fiction and what has life been like like what has it been for you to be you in this moment um it's very surreal like i it feels as though it happened to someone else um it doesn't really feel as though it actually happened to me um you know because for me the national book award was one of those it's such a caliber of award that like i never even thought to try i never even made an effort like i wasn't like trying to win it Cause it was like, it was such a high caliber. Like you just, you know, there's no way I'll ever actually win it um, or even be in contention for it. So even when I got long listed, like that was the most exciting day of my entire writing career. Just make, just making the long list was such a big deal. So after I won, um, like there was like a legit two week period of pure shock and awe where I just did not believe it had actually happened. I kept waiting to wake up and be like, Oh, that was a cool dream. Um, and then, you know, more time passed. But even now, like, I will have the weirdest moments of just going about my day and my brain will go, hey, I think you won, like, I think you won a National Book Award. And it's like, no, get out of here. So it's just the weirdest, most surreal thing where I'm still trying to actually accept it. <laughs> where is your medal? Like, in your trophy, where do you have those at? So they're at home. They're on my, on the mantle, actually, like, between two Nick Cage candles. And I'm not even joking about that um <laughs> yeah exactly exactly uh, a bunch of friends bought me some nick cage uh votive candles and so i've got the award sitting right between two of them and it's very fun <laughs> that's what's up you know we asked melinda Lowe, did she you know like put on her medal and right. just walk around town so you're not going to Fulton like hi hello how you doing dusting it off in front of them no it's just sitting on the on a mantle between exactly exactly <laughs> i did well if i if i'm being honest i did like just this past weekend i took it to i had a bunch of friends who we've been waiting to celebrate and we hadn't celebrated yet so i took it to the house this weekend and we literally drank champagne out of it so i think that's a pretty fun way to do it <laughs> we had champagne and moonshine and we would just like pour it in the top of it and just like do shots out of it so <laughs> i'm not sure how many authors have done shots for the national book award but i know at least one <laughs> yeah that's that's the right way to do it though. <laughs> that's what I thought. <laughs> that's what's up. Uh it's a natural response for humans to look towards the ending rather than the living in the moment. And the same can be said about watching a movie or in this case reading a book. And so often I have found myself telling Denny um that I had no clue how your book was going to end even down to the like the last few chapters and you so you have this gift of staying like 10 steps ahead of the reader is this something that you had to keep in mind while writing this book yeah very much so um it's it's weird like there was a for for most of the writing of the book I didn't think anybody would actually read it it was just this weird thing that I was kind of writing for myself and then but even within that context 
I knew that like, well, that's like my, my logic was if it finds a home, um, I want to make sure that like I take people on like the weirdest, wildest ride and kind of keep them guessing, but in a positive way. And so there was a lot of effort put into just staying a few steps ahead and making sure that people were kind of not confused, but like weren't a hundred percent sure of the facts and able to kind of be led along. Um, I felt like I wanted the book to be kind of like a fun house where like, you know, you're being led somewhere, but you don't know exactly where, but you trust that the person is going to be treat you safely and take you to a fun place. And so that's what I wanted for the book. And you, and you did it. You did it. It was <laughs> such a great, it was like you said, like a fun house, like a, like a, a box that had boxes and boxes in it. And you're just like, what's next? What's getting ready? <laughs> so if anyone hasn't read it yet, we highly, uh, we, we highly are in supportive of reading this book because it was, it was amazing. That's my new description of this book. Cause I, I think a lot of people were lo looking at me. I'm like, what is that about? So I'm trying to explain it, but it, I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, wait, but like, wait, let me, let me backtrack. But then it's happening. I'm just going to use that now. Thank you for um, another description of your book. Because I was really having a hard time. And I don't think I can like put it in like two sentences. Because like people sometimes don't have the patience to listen what you're trying to tell them, mm -hmm. you know, because they ask out of maybe politeness or they ask because they're uncomfortable because I, I won't talk. I don't have, I'm a, I'm an introvert. Mm -hmm. So I'm very comfortable of sitting in a space and not talking and just reading. Mm -hmm. And it so happened that your book was on me. And they were probably curious because they're like, hell of a book. I'm like, what is that about? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and we also live in Florida. So there's a lot of, there's a, it's, it's heavy. Gotcha. <laughs> 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 um, so when trying to illustrate that human life is a mixture of different things, you presented an ethical dilemma to the reader. How significant was it in writing this novel that you induce empathy and concern from the readers in this manner? I think that was one of the most important components of it. I mean, I think all of writing is designed to evoke some type of empathy or all of writing produces an argument, like you're trying to argue for or against something. And empathy is the best way to make people kind of connect with a thing and understand the idea and that there are actually human beings behind these ideas. And so making it where readers were able to connect with all the characters, um, even the strange ones, even the, the cruel ones, even the harsh ones, was definitely the most important part because I felt like if I was not able to bridge that gap with empathy, I felt the book would just completely fail. Um, and so, yeah, that was probably one of the most important parts of it. When reading this book, you can be, uh, you have Soot, the kid, and the unnamed author, or all of them at the same time. And so how enjoyable was this process for you to create all of these characters, developing them individually and together? It was a blast. Um, I had so much fun doing that. Way more fun than I probably should have had, quite frankly. Um, because the beauty of this book was when I, I wrote it without a publisher. So it was just me, like I said, like it was just me writing this book for me. And so at some point I decided I was going to make it the goofiest, craziest, most fun, heartbreaking thing I could. Because I felt like, you know, there was no reason not to. And having, <clears throat> excuse me, having that main character of the author be like this very weird, quirky dude who like was obsessed with film noir and Nick Cage. And it's funny because the Nick Cage stuff came in like very late in the process. Um, like in their earlier drafts, Nick Cage wasn't there. He was mentioned, but he like there wasn't as big of a deal about it. But then later on, it was this moment of my agent wanted me to make to delete one of the scenes that was in the book. And I didn't really want to delete the scene. But she made a good point. She was like, yeah, this needs to go. And just kind of like a, like a spiteful kid. I said, well, if I delete this scene, I'll put Nick Cage in the book. She's like, I don't care. Do it. I dare you. So... <laughs> so. <laughs> So it's kind of like a running joke for you. It, it completely it, is. It completely, like, it is, I get so much fun out of the fact that Nick Cage actually made it into the book because all my friends know that, like, I'm just, like, this Nick Cage junkie and it's kind of, like, our private inside joke. And so for that to make, like, when I, when, when I wrote that scene and sent it to my agent and she liked it, I texted all my friends and I said, oh, my God, I put Nick Cage in the book. And they were all like, you got to be kidding. No <laughs> way. I was like, yep, I put Nick Cage in the book and it works. It makes sense for the book. Like, it all, it's actually okay. And so it, it's just, um, so that was that. And then like Soot and the kid were really fun characters too. Soot was definitely a more like 
kind of heavier character to write, but it was still fun to live with that character because he's a very sweet character. Um, so it was fun to kind of work with him. And then the kid was this unique middle ground almost between the two characters. Um, so yeah, it was good from a creative space. It was good for like an emotional space. It was just, it was a fun project. It had just hard times, but it was really fun too. Your narrators really made this book even come alive even more with all of the the switching and, and especially with your main character of the author um, and him going into his like Humphrey Bogart voice. <laughs> it, it really was like something special to, to hear as well as read along with the story. I particularly like the part where uh, the author is having these moments with all these women named Kelly. And it, it is, it's like, I understand that so much because I banned the name Jonathan and Eric from my life, any formation. There you go. That word. <laughs> so I'm like, I get that. There's something telling about dating somebody with the same name over and over and over again. But they always come back, though. They always come back. Yeah, you always <laughs> find them. <laughs> They always come back to you. <laughs> so you said in your book, the South is America's longest running crime scene. How has your upbringing from the South have affected the stories that you, that you write? Yeah, so living in the South influences a lot of how I see America. I feel like America, the South is always this microcosm of American reality. I think there are other parts of the country that are like, they're this, this advertisement for what the American dream is, like the ideal of America. And it's not to say that the ideal of America is not achievable. Like, I think it actually is achievable. Um, but the South will oftentimes reflect what America really is when you take away the paint and the advertisements and all the good stuff and you get to see what it is, which is, and it's not to say, obviously, you know, there's that line, the South is America's longest running crime scene, but I don't want to portray the South as this like terrible hellhole where like no one can escape from. Like there's beauty in the South and there's wondrous and there's wonderful people in the South and there's friendship and there are like, you know, there are, you know, people that are different races and who get along and have, have kids and have, you know, have families and friends. Like the South is more diverse and metropolitan than I think even the South is willing to admit. And I think that's part of what influences the writing. So to have this story where you had this character who was from the South and who existed in the South, and yet he had this Humphrey Bogart kind of attitude and like all these weird hobbies and interests, like you don't get to see Southern characters that are outside of you know, just living on some country, you know, location. Um, Southern characters are oftentimes very much typecast in the same way that minority characters are typecast. And so it was fun to have both a minority character and a Southern character who kind of broke the stereotypes, um, which is my way of kind of trying to talk about what the South needs to do in regard to itself, I think. I like that because the last few people that we've had on the show, um, I'm really trying to, with the, with the Black uh, authors and creators that we have this year be from the south because it's such an important thing for us you know we're from florida and especially for me being black in the south i feel like it's one of those places that get dismissive when we're talking about culture right yeah. it's as if it doesn't exist there and so for what you've done with this character in the book by you know having this person be such a broad range of different things that aren't typical of a character that you would read about that is based in the South does a lot. And it really speaks to, you know, what we have here, as you were saying about all of the diversity that exists in here. Um, so there is a, a narrative that is often overlaid on the lives of Black folk, which is that we are a resilient people. And what your book has done is to show that despite what is viewed as resilience is at most times self-preservation both the author and the boy did things that they felt were necessary to one's own survival while dealing with racism that comes from being Black in America. What does this say about how trauma is perceived in the regards to race and this idea of resiliency? Yeah, I have a lot of, <clears throat> I have a lot of complicated feelings about resiliency and a lot of those, that image of, um, yeah, that image of like, oh, look what, you know, X people did, even despite the adversity and all that stuff. And it's like, yeah, it's cool that people can come through it. But how about we just stop the adversity part of it? Like, how about we just stop making people have to be resilient? Like, nobody sits at home at night going, oh, my God, I wish more terrible things would happen to me so I could learn to be more resilient. Like, no one makes that wish. Like, mm -hmm. 
And yet it is considered this badge of honor to have, you know, that resilience is your, your trademark kind of character trait. And when you do that to an entire group of people, then you create this mentality, even amongst that group of people where like, this is the life that they're supposed to have all this kind of stuff happen. They're just supposed to, you know, bear it and walk through it. And I think that's a very dangerous kind of attitude and dangerous kind of stigma to create because again, it does become self-perpetuating where the people caught in the cycle start to believe that that is the only way they can identify. Um, you get these people who they, they, ref, they only, you know, they've been told that they have to be strong 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they're not allowed to be weak and they're not allowed to have a breakdown and to be overworked and overstressed. And they just need a break from it all. You're not allowed to do that. You got to hustle. You got to grind. You're tough. You're, and then they, they burn out and have a nervous breakdown at 40 and you're trying to figure out why and what happened where they, you know, they have high blood pressure, like all these things, your, your body will eventually pay you back for that. Like you spend your life just pushing through because that's what you've been taught to do. And eventually your body will catch you and no one understand. Then suddenly everyone's kind of going, well, why'd that happen? So I think it's, it's super important. Like that resiliency image, it's great if you can be resilient. It's better if you don't have to be. Yeah. Yeah. To really just sit in what the feelings that you are you are feeling in that moment and be allowed to because a lot of mm-hmm. times we're especially black women are you yes. know taught that you just kind of like you know yep you on your brave face and you just keep trucking as if nothing ever happened to you yeah because no one wants to acknowledge what did happen to you right exactly and like i work in the other side like in healthcare too because i am you know people that listen to this podcast know that like um, my other gig is I'm a nurse. So I see that, like, I see really the disparity of like, you know, how, how like, you know, they we say like the generational trauma and like you were saying the resiliency, like how it affects your body physically. Mm-hmm. Like you see those signs and symptoms, it's a real thing. Like if you look at like statistics, if you look at like people that are going into the hospital, who are we treating? Like you said, like it reflects on our bodies. And it is, you know, it's sad because like when we get to that other part, we're also like kind of deprived of these kind of like care that we really need because of all the adversity that happened from the start. Mm -hmm. So it's a whole, it's a whole cycle and it's deeper than people would really think because it's, it it comes and it goes and people kind of just take, take it for granted because it's not happening to them. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Like people, yeah, I think you're right. Obviously as a nurse, I'm sure you've seen it firsthand, like it again like your body you spend a a lifetime just suppressing and like pushing through that has to come back to you at some point and it will pay through your body and then you're suddenly having all these health issues you don't know why you think it's this you think it's that and it's really just the fact that like you never took care of yourself emotionally and psychologically you just mean it's it's like tensing muscle your whole life you tense that muscle for your entire life eventually it's going to cause problems so you have mentioned um a couple times that you are book is you know semi-autobiographical it takes to me it takes a lot of like courage and like self-reflection to putting all like you know this experiences out there how did you decide that this was the next book that you're going to write um it was a bit of a, a weird decision so it this book started a long time like in 2013 when I was on tour for the returned um I wrote a bunch of stuff about an author on book tour it was just comedic but it was no the autobiographical components weren't really there. It was just a fun story about an author on book tour. And then around the time of um, Freddie Gray, the incident, the Baltimore riots, things like that. I've got a friend who lives in Baltimore. We spent a lot of time talking about that, like literally for like three weeks, every day for three weeks, we talked in the mornings and I got kind of overwhelmed by it. And I was, cause I was remembering things in my own life and just, you know, the parts of me that were being affected by being black in America and growing up and like kind of all kind of reaching ahead. And my friend just said, you know, well, you're a writer, you should write something about that. And so I started writing these very personal things that were just for me. They were just some, they weren't really part of the story. They were just, you know, pages that were about a character who was experiencing some things that were close to what I experienced. Because even then I was afraid to directly say like, these events are exactly mine. And so when I went to, I started combining those with the stuff about the author on book tour and I was terrified the entire time because I am, I'm also an introvert and I'm a very private person. Like I do not like 
my information to be out there. I don't like, I don't like for me, for my life to be out there. That's why I write fiction and not nonfiction, you know, like I want to make sure I just make up things. And so it was really terrifying and really difficult to write it, but it was a case where I did, I couldn't not write it, um, which is usually the key that you need to, you know, a lot of times that's the case where you, you, your brain and your body and your emotions know that you need to tell this story in a certain way. And so you just kind of bite the bullet and do it and hope for the best, but it's still very terrifying. We had Kiese on last year and I, I asked him uh, in regards to long division, did he feel as if this was like his intro into pushing himself into nonfiction? Cause that's where he, he lives mainly in, in nonfiction talking about his own personal life. Um, but if long division was what just how he could, maneuver getting ready to talk about those heavy heavy things and I know you, you you just said it that you know fiction is where you live but do you feel as if in you know in addition to what you just said that that was also your way of like working through whatever you had experienced as a child on up to an adult yeah wholeheartedly there was so much therapy on the page done in the writing of this book um and again like part of my my defense mechanism is that I use fiction and I blend just enough reality with just enough imagination that even people who know me personally have a hard time discerning which parts are real which parts are just fiction and that's the way I like it but for me I still was able to get through kind of my you know sort my demons out and sort through my kind of emotional stigmas and baggage on the page which is the reason you know it's the reason the book had to exist to kind of help me over some humps because we you know writing all of that is to me was you know you didn't sugarcoat anything you didn't you didn't basically you you said like how a black individual can exist or cease to exist in America um just thinking about it more so like relieving it through the pages um through your writing was probably very exhausting and really depressing how are you able to take care of yourself while you were going through this process honestly that's why um so that's why the book is so absurd and comical be, to help me through like the difficult parts of the writing um because all the parts with soot all the parts with like the the kid like all the heavy stuff was so difficult and so challenging that the only way I could actually survive it was to write the silliest goofiest parts that I could to make sure that I made time to laugh as I was working on the project and so that's where I started trying to balance the comedy and front load the comedy and just you know do even more with the comedy that I never expected to do because that was the only way you know that was the only way I could do the hard parts like the hard parts were so big and so heavy that they just kind of were drowning me and so the comedy gave me a chance to come up for air and laugh and catch my breath and then go back to the heavy parts again mm-hmm. you you have uh to say something um because you are a writer especially because you are a black writer that statement was thrown to the unnamed author by multiple people in the story and now as jason you um has, how has that immense amount of pressure affect not just your work but your core being um honestly i'm still sorting that out like i'm still trying to figure out how i feel about this book um and about a lot of the success that it's had like the, i think the irony <laughs> The irony of this book is the book is all about how, you know, Black authors feel obligated to talk about race in order to kind of be seen and have success. And which book of mine does the best of all of them is the one where I talk about race and then do all the exact <laughs> same things. So there, there's, a, there's a major irony there that is not missed, on, not, not lost on me. And so I'm still trying to figure out, like, what does that mean? Like, what does that mean for the argument? Does that prove the argument that the book is trying to make? Does that disprove the argument? Like, I'm not really sure. So I'm still sorting through that. And I'm also, it's also interesting to me to be in this position where I speak so directly about these kind of topics. Like I am used to, all of my books discuss race in some manner. It's usually just a very secondary kind of subdued manner. And so to have this platform now where I am, I wrote a project that speaks so directly about these topics is, it's very different. So I'm still kind of learning that and learning how to navigate that and learning what that means. Um, I just, I think the irony is just kind of hilarious, but also kind of sad in a strange way. Mm-hmm. It's it's as if it's, you know, uh, what's that saying from Spider-Man with great power comes great <laughs> <Right>. responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm like, you know, now that you have this, this, this title of National Book Award uh, winner, like now people are looking, I'm sure looking to see what are you going to do next? Like what other subjects in regards to Black folk in life in general, are you going to address in your, in your next book? And, you know, you might just want to write a book about somebody who likes playing street fighter for a living <laughs> and that is the book but you know some people are like no nah, man yeah. you gotta write something else so i can understand the irony is what you spoke about of you know wanting to do what you want to do but having that conflict <laughs> of trying to figure out if i should write something else i like this is like completely uh, maybe like off off key did you know that you were this funny? Like, are you really this funny? Because <laughs> to me, you are hilarious. I hope you know that. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, I don't know. Like, my friends say I'm funny. So, <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's, I've never done, like, stand-up or anything. My, fr- my friends laugh at my jokes most of the time. I figure that's enough. Um, no, the com- it's funny. Like, the comedy was very, like, I wasn't sure if that was going to work at all because I hadn't really done... Again, I think I'm kind of funny, but I've never written comedy and writing comedy is very different. Um, and even my agent was, when I first told her about the project and told her it was going to be like a comedy, she's like, yeah, cool, that's fine. She's like, you've never done comedy before. So, you know, selling it maybe, you know, we were all anticipating this really hard thing. Um, but yeah, it's it's fun to share. I feel like I hadn't shared my comedy with my readers before um, with this, you know, with that part of myself. So it's fun to actually... Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad you think I'm funny. I'm glad people think I'm funny. And I really think that is kind of like your true self. Because when I was like reading your Twitter, I'm like, Jason Mott is so funny. (laughs) And your meme game is strong. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) You know, from from the old millennials, because that's where we are, like in this um, timeline. Like I'm like, I get his jokes. Um, that I think that's why I, I, I like your book because it reminds me so much of Interior Chinatown by Charles Yu. Yes, love that book. Yes, and I'm like, what if like, he, like I don't know, maybe you have like author friends and famous people friends, I don't know. But I feel like if you and him would be in a room together, it would be hilarious. You would be talking about the <laughs> hardest things, but it would be such a blast. <laughs> oh, to be a fly in the wall. You have no idea how much I admire Charles Yu. Like I, I, I fell in love with his first novel, How to Survive in a Science Fictional Universe, and yeah. have just followed, followed his career ever since. Like he worked on Westworld. Like I've just like been stuck to his career. Um, so yeah, I would love to sit in the room with him and just hang out. Like I think it'd be so so fun. Um, he's amazing. Oh, and generic Asian man and unknown. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That will be. Yeah. I want There's that a TV show. book. Can we have that one as a, as a graphic novel, though? Can we yes. Do oh, that's beautiful. That's I got. That's that's awesome. I got to do something with that. That's funny. I got to use that. Yeah. yeah, do a short story. Hit him up. Hit him up. Um, Charles, hey, hello. hello I people. got an idea. <laughs> you know, and and I could just be like, I don't know, serving popcorn. I want to. <laughs> snacks strings okay so okay going back so but there there's this filipino proverb that as i'm filipino um that i've learned at the very young age it says a person that does not look back and learn from the past would never really reach his destination and i was very um this is i think one of the most like not painful for me in my heart is when the unnamed author finally meets the guy. You know, for the other people that haven't read the book, this is the time that you kind of pause and come back. But, you know, the the person responsible for the killing. I'm just going to say that. Um, and the theme there to me was the past is very important. Um, but, you know, we live in a country when we're so comfortable at ignoring the past. So... How do we as readers and consumers of the art try to fight and aid, you know, this erasure of ignoring our past and like America's past? Yeah, I think we just have to keep using our voice. We have to keep reminding, sadly, like we, 
minorities are oftentimes the conscience of America, which is a terrible burden to give minorities. And this is minorities of all, all types and colors and genders. Like if, because America very much wants to build a specific narrative of this ideal, you know, city on a hill kind of, kind of country. And the thing is like, every all, all the minority people like we want that too like we want that beautiful beacon on a, on a hill but it cannot get there if we pretend that all these things never happened that all these actions were never committed um <clears throat> there's that line in there when the the author is speaking with the media trainer which is a hilarious fun scene for me i have fun writing that scene but the media trainer talks about how like um if someone punches you in the face and punches you in the neck like they don't want you reminding them of the fact that they punched you in the neck even though you have every right to and I feel like that's how America wants to treat so much of its past. They want to pretend that all these things didn't happen. And the thing is like reminding, keeping that part of the history is not the same as like attacking people. And like, you know, you're not attacking the people that live now because of what their ancestors did. You're just saying, hey, let's not pretend that like that has not had an impact on me and my life and the lives of people who look like me and who behave like me. Um, then that impact is important. And we need to talk about that and make some changes to, you know, to equalize that. But I don't know, I think people get really threatened by, you know, there's, been a, there's been a lot of a lot of comedians who have talked about like, one thing that America is afraid of is that one day they'll get treated like they've treated other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, you know, if you, you punch someone in the neck and then they grow up and they're able to punch you back, you don't want that. Like no one, no one wants to get punched back. Um, so yeah, I think it's the duty and it is the sad, solemn duty of people, minorities to remind America of its actions and also look for that future, but to not get, not have that, that story written out. That, that reminding thing got also, it gets tiring. It kind of is coupled with the resiliency thing, Yes, (laughs) you know, like we're tired of trying to help other people do the work when they should be yep. doing the work for themselves yeah uh, yeah so that can that can definitely get tiring um you've been in the writing business for more than a decade um is there anything that you are still afraid of putting down on the page no not anymore especially not after not after hell of a book um hell of a book was really a creative and kind of emotional psychological breakthrough for me because it was the first book where I just didn't care anymore. Um, it was this thing where I was like, I'm just, I'm gonna just have fun and make this book the thing that I wanted to make it. And so after that, like, and then, you know, to have it be the most successful novel that I've written, it really reinforced the idea that like, I, I kind of know a little bit about what I'm doing. Like, I'm not saying that I'm the best writer, but like, I can trust my instincts and I can write a book that I want to, that I want to write and just have fun with it and have it be successful. Um, so like earlier you were talking about how like, you know, there's this, people kind of create this pressure of like, well, what's going to happen next? And what are you going to write next? And I've had people ask, like, am I worried about that? And do I stress over that? And it's like, no, like, I really don't care what people think anymore. Like, I've, I've won the National Book Award. Like, who cares what I do next? Like, I can, I can get hit by a bus or I can write 10 terrible books, but you cannot take <laughs> away that one time that I won the National Book Award. So, right. yeah, like, I have no pressure at all. <laughs> You're in like Rihanna status right now. You know, like everybody <laughs> wants her to put out an album and she's like, I'm just trying to live my life. I'm going to make this underwear and sell this makeup. And Y'all going to get it. So who knows? <laughs> What's next for Jason? Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, if like this book and like this, this book is like it, eternal almost. Like it doesn't like, I know there's like this, this time when like oh this fits a certain period in time but when we are now this this book like would be would be here for Mm -hmm. for a while for a long 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 time Mm -hmm. not because of like just the topic but it's because of how you wrote it and I think how you went about it like they people should read it people should learn that's just that's why we're here that's why we're having (laughs) conversations yes they need to hear to buy it they need to do all the things so (laughs) to me it's always a delight when read when we read um when i mean when authors incorporate um the publishing world in 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 the book um especially after that we do this like podcast (laughs) and like we talk to authors and we (laughs) 
we we hear about the tea (laughs) (laughs) and you know it's not it's not a shocker that they're very discriminating to people of color um how necessary was it to highlight these experiences to so people can truly understand that nothing comes easy to people like us um you know especially after talking to the media trainer (laughs) (laughs) it was very it was super necessary like part of so sometimes I, I teach on occasion and one of the things I really teach is like there there's the mystique of being a writer and there's the reality of being a writer and the two are always very very far apart from one another so I think that people have an image of particularly minority minority writers that you live a certain way and the like the publishing industry meets you halfway and all this kind of stuff happens um, and so it was important to me to kind of really poke fun and really I hate to say exposed it sounds like you know I kind of you know, threw back some harsh curtain, but like kind of talk about the fact that like these things are often, they're never as, they're never said as directly as the media trainer says them. Um, but they are said in a roundabout way through like sometimes through editorial choices or through like, you know, wardrobe choices that people try to get you to make or how people kind of, you know, listen to your interviews and want you to go back. Well, next interview, maybe don't say this thing here, maybe say it this way. Like, there's a lot of kind of, they call it, you know, kind of sanding off the edges. Um, well, sometimes you need those edges. Sometimes those edges need to be there to get the point across. And so that's why it was particularly important for me to really create this world that was somewhat farcical, but, but close enough to reality that people could kind of understand that when you are a minority writer, the rules are different. And that's one of the problems that like the rules should not be different. Like how many how many beautiful imaginations are we losing because we only allow minority people to talk about their minority experience? They're, for, they're busy being the conscience of America when they could be off writing the next Lord of the Rings or the next like high fantasy novel that takes over the world. Like minority writers don't get to do that because it's like, oh, you're, you're minority? Cool. What's your, what's your story about how you're, you grew up different? Like maybe I don't want to spend that time doing that. Like, so it's very challenging. What was it like to like have the team that you have now, you know, with your editor and your agent, what was that whole forming those group of people to help bring not only hell of a book, but all of your other works uh, to fruition? It's been great. Um, So I I know the book makes fun of agents a lot, um, but my, my agent is wonderful. I've had her for literally since the beginning, we've been together 10 years, the longest relationship I've ever been in with my agent, which is, which is (laughs) hilarious. Um, her and I have been partners for 10 years and one of us, one of us got to die before the end. Like that's, that's how we, and that's how we end this relationship. One of us got to die. It can be hit by a bus. It can be whatever. Like we're not getting divorced. Like my old uncle say, we ain't getting divorced, but somebody, somebody got to go. So that's, that's me and my agent. We just, we just stuck together from now until whenever. Um, and so her and I have been rewriting this ride for a long time. So with this book, I did leave my previous publisher and like didn't have an editor at all. I have an agent. I mean, didn't have an editor or a publisher. And so we shopped it around to like three or four different, like a lot of places. And we found this publisher who was really interested and who seemed to get it. Like it was, they got it and they weren't trying to like change it. Um, Cause sometimes editors will come to your project and they're like, Oh, this is, this is wonderful. This is perfect. But let's make like these six, seven, eight, nine major changes. So that it comes out kind of different but it'll still be the same. It's like, no, it won't. It'll be very different. So I found this editor who had, he had a great sense of what the book was trying to be. And rather than redirect that, he actually like helped me make changes to make it more sharp and make it more pointed, like get more to where the book wanted to be. Um, and so between him and my agent, because my agent did a lot, my agent and one of her friends, one of her coworkers did a lot of the editorial stuff before we even went to a publisher. So I've been lucky to have like a lot of really good people around me to make this happen. And it's been terrific. Like I said, this has been probably the best, best experience I've had in a long time as far as publishing goes. And I don't want to throw like my previous publisher under the bus. Like my previous publisher was terrific. Um, but this has been just a very special ride like from the beginning. And it's, it's just really good to be where I am right now. Like I'm having a great time in that side of things. I know we spent most of the time talking about hell of a book and in, in, in your work as a fiction writer, but you also write poetry. And I'm just <laughs> curious as to, is that something that is the most important nearest dearest to, in your heart um, of place to write in or is fiction now like number one for you? No. So 
fiction has always been fiction has always been number one like poetry is my side chick like i met her in college <laughs> and me and poetry hung out for a couple years in college and it was great it was fun but like me me and me and fiction been booed up since i was 14 and it's, it's always going to be me and fiction and i'll i'll venture to other things i'll do you know poetry i'll do you know screenwriting hopefully one day and i would love to write comic books one day like there are all these things that I would love to go off and do, but it, I will always come back to fiction. That's that's just kind of where I'm born and bred. Mm. Uh, and speaking of being born and bred, you are from a small town in North Carolina called Bolton, um, born and raised. And it is also a place where you still reside to this day. Oftentimes when we interview writers, they all seem to be based in major cities like New York or, or Los Angeles. What is it about Bolton that keeps you from following the masses to the bigger cities? <laughs> well, I think it's a mixture. I mean, I think a lot of it comes down to my personality. Um, like I said earlier, I am an introvert, like a pretty extreme one. I don't like crowds. I don't like people. <laughs> I don't say I don't like people. But I, I, <laughs> I it's okay. exactly it's okay there are people there are people you. that i like I you you're in a yeah, safe yeah place. thank you thank you you feel what you feel what i say when i say that though um yeah I, I like i like the quiet of the town that i live in you know i've been to a lot of cities i've you know i lived in a couple of cities for a couple of years and it just it doesn't i feel unsettled when like there's always traffic there's always noise it's like when there's people all around like i just feel unsettled whereas out in the middle of nowhere like if it wasn't Bolton I would find some other small town to live in where nobody could kind of like it's just a very small area um that's the part of it that is very centering for me like I feel very centered um out in those kind of locations so that's why I just never wanted to move to any kind of city or any kind of bigger city my my mom and my father are uh they were uh, from a city called Quincy which is outside of Tallahassee and I went, you know, making those trips as a child, going to see your grandparents, stuff like that. Yep. It wasn't until when I was in college, my senior year, when I ended up staying with my uncle to finish out my last semester instead of spending money in an apartment. And it was, I, I debated for a very long time as to whether I wanted to live there because I, I was like, this is really nice. Like, yep. quiet. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> early, but that's okay. Like, where am I going to go? Like, I really, yep. I really liked it, but I definitely do miss going, you know, having that quiet, being able to hear crickets at night when you go mm -hmm. to sleep versus now we hear traffic is turnpike <laughs> right next to us. So we hear it all, all through the night, but it definitely means something to be in a, in a, in a space like a small city like like yours like Bolton and yeah I'm sure like yeah I mean I, I love it like I don't knock but I think at the same time I don't knock anyone that lives in bigger cities like because again like you definitely have to give some things up like you have to have a certain kind of like you have to be okay with a certain type of lifestyle where you know at, at seven o'clock things shut down like you home for you you in for the night seven o'clock you just in for the night and you got to be okay with that and so I get it when, when people say that like that's not for them that's absolutely fine like I get it um and same way that big cities aren't for me like there's no harm in that so I get it what's the biggest city next next to y'all the biggest city next to us is Wilmington which is actually where I am right now because I don't have internet at home because I live out in the woods <laughs> so See, that's the thing I'm also from I'm also from a very I'm first of all I'm from a third world country but up in the hill so you know I understand all of this but then the internet was just driving me I'm like what <laughs> not an interneted house like yep. i'm sure it's amazing at some point but don't it drive you crazy sometimes oh no it drives me pure crazy <laughs> it drives me back shit crazy um because like it's it's a thing that's being fixed like theoretically i should have internet in the next like couple months because so the rural area where i live in there are a lot of people without internet like that's just that that area the counties internet companies just kind of have abandoned us to it for all kind of intensive purposes but then when COVID hit and quarantine hit, all those kids who live in those houses where they don't have internet suddenly were just out of luck because all everything went online. And if you don't have internet, you can't go online and learn. So a lot of federal and state grants have come out in the last two years. So like they're actually like putting down fiber optic cable now, like in my front yard, like theoretically in a couple of months, I should be able to like, you know, catch up to the year 2000 and have internet. <laughs> um, but it is a thing like, yeah, it, it is not fun. Like people have this image of like, oh, this awesome no internet world yeah it's fine if that's what if that's your plan like it's it's like saying you want to you know it's like saying oh a no sugar diet is great and healthy for you yeah if you want that 
if you want to have no sugar, then cool. But I like some candy from time to time. So if you want internet, you can't get it. It's not fun. <laughs> so I'm like, how does he does his gaming? Like my my concern was like it's all <laughs> offline. It's all offline, boo. It's oh. terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> Jason, I'm living in 1992 hard. right now. <laughs> <laughs> what about like a hot spot? Like if you just need to hook up nah. your the cell signals are too, too spotty out there. Like it's not, I mean, so at home I can do, you know, I can email you from my phone. I can do that kind of good stuff. But like this zoom call, like I'm in Wilmington right now. I drove half hour to come to this office to be in Wilmington right now, because there's no way we could do this from my house right now. Oh my gosh. See, this thanks. is bananas. That's all <laughs> Thank you for making time. And I hope that fiber optics will be in your house so you can play your games on real time. If we, Thank you. If we Thank would come you. and lay that wire down right now. <laughs> I, I don't care all about the other engagement. It's just the gaming for me. Like how, how is the gaming happening without the internet? It's, it is it's all offline. Do y'all still terrible. have a blockbuster? <laughs> No, we don't. We don't have a blockbuster. I mean, like you can't stream Netflix if you ain't got no internet. No, you show sure, you show sure can't. You cannot stream Netflix at all. You, you can do the Netflix DVDs. I'm rocking the Netflix DVDs like a champ, though. <laughs> yep, that's my lifestyle. Redbox. Red yeah, exactly. I can do Redbox exactly. Okay. okay. <laughs> but Redbox is a 17 mile drive from my house, though. So they ain't even like a quick plan. <laughs> I told you. Seven o'clock come, you in for the night. That's your, that's it. You better go out in them streets and Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> you go home. Or, or Amazon, all, all the, all the, all the DVDs and like. Yeah, I got, I got, a, I got a gang of DVDs. Definitely. <laughs> oh, wow. 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 Well, your life will be different in a few months. It'll, <laughs> it'll be amazing. Um, Will you talk to us about your relationship with Robert Jones Jr. and what it is to be a part of that beautiful brotherhood of writers? Man, that has been the, the most awesome, unexpected surprise out of all of this. Because, um, like, again, like, I didn't, you know, I had never met him, did not know him before a few months ago. Um, and then we both got, you know, we both got long listed for the National Book Award. And he messaged me on Twitter and it was just, it was just the most polite, like, Hey, just so you know, like this, this isn't a competition thing. You know, if I win, you win, just, you know, wanted to say hello. And that's the kind of like, that's the kind of vibe I kind of connect with. Like, that's kind of how I see the world. Cause I didn't see it as kind of, I, I was just excited to be made that far. So I started messaging him and we were joking about like, Oh man, like who can I, we were just enjoying the fact that we were both long listed for the prize and having fun with it. And we've stayed in touch and kind of become friends. Yeah. It is being, having met him and kind of forming this friendship with him has been like one of the most unexpected blessings of the last year. Um, him and Mateo are scary poor as well. Mateo and I have had a few conversations. He is another like amazing dude. Like we, he's same thing. Those two, I've just met both of them in the last six months and I can see myself rolling with them for years. Like they're just awesome people. It's amazing because what we've noticed uh, when speaking to writers uh, about like how did they how did they know each other? Because in our minds, like all writers know each other, like y'all right, right, automatically, <laughs> and they're like, oh no, we just hit each other up on Goodreads or on Twitter, <laughs> or, you know, we send them an email and you know say, hey, I see you got this book coming out. So it's it's really cool seeing all of this like play out in front of us and this this new found uh, friendship that you all have. And it's funny too, cause like I think we talked about it around this time. Yeah of the year like when his book came out mm -hmm. so I'm like oh this is such a full circle moment because I know you guys just had you know your your talk to which was so enjoyable to listen to yeah yeah like so we we met back in me and Mateo met back in like March or April when my my agent contacted me and she was like hey do you want to do a panel to talk about Mateo's book and I was like yeah sure cool and so uh, we did the panel and we, him and I connected, like we were in the green room before the panel and we just connected immediately. Like we were joking about stuff and having fun. And then you fast forward, like two months later, my book comes out and it was like, Hey, maybe we'll get Mateo to do an interview with you. It's like, yeah, sure. And we had a blast. And afterwards I said, Hey, let's jump on zoom after this. And just me and you hang out and talk. And we said like two hours later, we're just, we're just on zoom, just talking trash and having fun, like just having a blast. So yeah, it's, you don't, you don't get to make many writer friends as strange as that sounds like, because writing is such an isolated thing. You're all spread out everywhere. 
and so it's cool to kind of like connect with people and then actually have it come to fruition where like you actually stay in touch and you have fun and like robert jones jr and i have four events lined up just by accident no idea how it happened but like we're going to see each other in person like four times in the next month and a half which is terrific and then I found out I'm going to Paris in September for a festival. And Mateo was like, me too, player. We're going to have some fun in Paris. He's like, yeah. So oh, we're going to be Negroes in Paris in yay. September. So that's going to be fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's what's up. Because that was my next question. I'm like, so where's the grand reunion? <laughs> yeah, exactly. We got it. Yeah. So like I said, me and, me and Robert Jones Jr. have events in Virginia, Tucson, and two in Mississippi um next month and then Mateo so at some point I'm going to New York like I'm trying to go to New York sometime this spring or fall or summer so when I go like all the we're already like yeah we we, we books and something we're going to hang out somewhere when I go to New York and just kind of act stupid for a night or two um yeah it's been terrific though like there are some of the dopest people I've met ever in writing I love them Oh, that's awesome. That's I hope, awesome. I hope you can bring them all to Bolton. <laughs> this, this, this is this is a retreat. <laughs> Mateo wouldn't Mateo wouldn't make it a Bolton, dude. Mateo would lose his oh, mind in Bolton no. after like an hour and a half. <laughs> he would be he would be shaking by the by the time exactly he reached like the what is it, the state line or yep, the yep. line. Mateo built for that city life. <laughs> I would be remiss if I don't don't say this. Um, I was talking to my mom a few days ago and and she said, oh, I was just watching, uh, what's that show called? CBS Saturday Morning. And they had this, this Black author on there. It was so good. <laughs> I wrote his book name. Where did I put it? I wrote it down and I said, was his name Jason Mott? And she said, yes. And I said, mama, I'm talking to him on on Wednesday. She's like, really? So <laughs> I love that I had this moment. <laughs> to be That's like, awesome. You know, the person you saw on TV, I get to talk to him on Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> That's so terrific. Well, tell her, tell hello. Hello, mama. <laughs> tell her hello for me. <laughs> She's like, will I be able to watch it? I said, no, you have to listen to it. You'll be able to listen to it. She said, okay, okay. So that's awesome. Thank you for giving me that moment. <laughs> We're at the end of our conversation together and we have our, our infamous last question. So, you know, it's a cliche, but we have to ask. Um, it's one of the two. Um, either your top five most favorite books or top five books that you have, rec have recently came out or coming out that you're more, most excited about. Um. I think so top five favorite books like all time um mm -hmm. would be uh Grendel by John Gardner um The Color Purple by Alice Walker um Meditations by Marcus Aurelius which is more of a philosophy book um Lord of the Flies by William Golding and hmm number five number five um Weapon X by Barry Winsor Smith, which is actually a comic book um, that I actually fell in love with a long, long time ago and wanted to be a writer because of that. So yeah, those are my five. All right. Will you be writing like some graphic novels, comic books? Man, I hope so. Somebody tell Marvel to call me real quick and we can figure something out. Uh, I've been trying for years to get in the door with Marvel and they will not call me back. I don't know why. <laughs> oh, just wear your medal. And exactly. go, go to the office and say, do you know who I am? Exactly. That's exactly. like the highest credential that you can have. They, they I, mean, I know. Soon. Soon. Yeah. We're going to speak yeah. in business. And when that I hope happens, so. That, that is my life goal. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much uh, for coming on to our show. It has been a tremendous time to spend with you. Uh, and we are very appreciative that you would dedicate this hour to talking with us about your, your wonderful book. Thank you so much for having me. This is a blast. You guys are wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. I hope the the graphic novel comic book would come out and, you know, maybe you can be a character in Street Fighter. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> or, you know. That'll be the next move into yes. acting. Yes. I love it. I love it. I'm down for that. Thank you. Best introverts <laughs> are the best actors. <laughs> <laughs> funny people, though. <laughs> <laughs> No, we're not. All right, Jason. Thank you so much. You take care. Be safe. Thank you. You guys too. Take care. Bye. Bye.
If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. Let us explain. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started.